despite my accomplishments in life, when I'm behind the wheel of a car and I get pulled over by a police officer, as he's approaching my window, I can tell he is afraid of me and his fear of me is a threat to my life. You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Big Idea Friday, which means you'll be hearing Sangram share a specific concept that has transformed the way he lives his life and leads his business. Like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Sangram here. How's everybody doing? Well, this is our finale. This is the final, and I saved best for the last in some way because I think this is going to be fantastic. As most of you have been listening to this, I've been doing this uh, this whole series um, around just passing the mic, passing the mic, and highlighting more meaningful stories of those within the African American community. And we had Nikki on Monday. Uh, we had Tanisha. Nikki talked about. How, what's really happening and how she's addressing it or dealing with her in all professional life as a marketing sales leader. Uh, Tanisha, you talked about the, the hiring process and why hiring process needs to change so that we can have more diversity. Morgan, if you remember, um, he was on fire. He was talking about like the anti-why. He was talking about the fact that, well, when everything is said and done, how are people going to remember him? Right. Like Kwame yesterday, uh, he's the president and CEO of Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Metro Atlanta. He talks about like, look, if you if you don't take action, then uh, you you have to tell your sons and daughters and, and grandchildren what you did, what you didn't do. And today I have Reggie Rivers. He's the former NFL uh, Denver Broncos uh, player. I met him a few years ago. He has been on the podcast and I'm super excited to, to welcome him back and, and now talk about the whole uh, Reggie Rivers, not not just the one that I saw on stage. Uh, he's you know he's done so many different things. We're gonna get jump into it. But as you uh, find it, just jump in over here, to, uh, join us, tell us where you're from, so we get to know you. And let me just bring in Reggie to the show. Reggie, how you doing, man? Good, Sangram. How are you doing? I am fantastic. So Reggie, you're you're a media personality. I I, I watched the video you sent me like. There's probably no spot in Denver where you can walk and people don't know who you are. You you obviously have been an NFL, you know, Denver Broncos player. You're the CEO of the Gala team where you do a, a whole bunch of things. I don't know what else you're doing, but it seems like there's so many things that you're always onto. So so share a little bit about yourself and uh, we'll jump into it. Sure. Well, I played for the Broncos back in the 90s from 1991 to 96. After growing up in Texas, uh, my I've continued to stay here in Denver. I have been a media personality on radio, TV, and newspaper. I started a company called the Ga- the Gala Team. We we do nonprofit fundraising for big charity galas, and uh, I've been a corporate motivational speaker. And I'm an African American man. And despite my accomplishments in life, when I'm behind the wheel of a car and I get pulled over by a police officer as he's approaching my window, I can tell he is afraid of me and his fear of me is a threat to my life. Yeah, man. I think this is this has been such a hard conversation as we have heard over and over again. And 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 I don't pretend it to walk in. So here's my opening statement as we jump into the interview. I'm neither white nor black for anybody who has uh, who's known me or can see me on screen. Uh, I don't pretend to fully and even partially comprehend what it means to be an African-American. Um, but I'm a person. I'm a human. I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, I'm a community builder. 
So I believe it is my duty to understand what is going on and why. It is my duty to learn where my bias lies and how to overcome it. It is my duty to be part of the solution and bring hope to the world where trust, safety, and care, the three things that I hold so dear, become common values for everyone. And finally, I believe it is my duty to allow myself to learn, grow, and tell a different story of unity, love, and grace, not race, to my children and grandchildren. So I wanted to have that as an opening statement because I feel like I wanted to make sure that the conversation, people listening to this, recognizes the intensity, the depth, and the importance of this conversation and the perspectives that we're going to bring in uh, to this. I don't know if you have any commentary on on that uh, opening yeah. statement. You know, I, I love that statement and I love the role modeling of it that that you you are neither white nor black, yet you are the conduit for this conversation and you are diving in with your full force, the full weight of your your followership, the full weight of your position as a co-founder in your company, the, the full weight of your experience of doing these interviews. You're diving in to say I want to help move this issue forward. And it's a great model for what we all have to do if we're going to change this. I appreciate that, Reggie. And and I remember like you were literally the uh, the first person was the one who called me out, which was Nikki. And you were the second person I texted and said, hey, or email and said, Reggie, would you be open? And you were immediately like, yep, Sangram, whatever. So I super appreciate it. Um, and here you go. You can. Uh, you were asking me like, "Hey, do you can, what can you see on screen?" So you can see like Erica joining on over here. You know, and Erica has been listening almost every single day and 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 learning. And so, if you have any comments on what you have learned so far to bring into this conversation, I think Reggie is will be phenomenal to respond to your questions or commentary on it. Uh, we got Kai coming in from North Carolina. We got Teresa. She has been. I think, Teresa, you probably have been there every single day. So I <laughs> so appreciate you being on and being part of it. Uh, Fatima, so we have people from all over the place. Uh, all, and so I love the fact that as a community, we are realizing that it's time to learn. Right. It's time to understand, try to understand as much as you can. So you wrote an article and you forwarded that to me and I watched the video that you shot around the isms. Can you highlight what are the different types of isms that that we need to be aware of and how should people think about it? Sure. Well, I think that all of the isms share a common trait and, you know, the racism, sexism, homophobism, anti-Semitism, all of the the various isms that we have. We tend to look at ourselves and we say, you know what, I don't have any overt symptoms of racism. I I, I don't use the N-word. I don't tell racist jokes. I don't uh, discriminate against people. I have friends who are black. Um, I'm very sympathetic to the, the black movement and the, the push for equality. So I don't have any overt symptoms of racism. Therefore, I'm not a racist. But the reality of our country is that m- most people are asymptomatic carriers of the racism that harms so many black people. And it I, that's a hard thing to say because if you feel like you're an advocate for the black people, that can be hard for you to accept that. And and for me, the thing that opened my eyes to it was that I had to realize that I am an asymptomatic carrier of the sexism that harms so many women. And that was a shock to me. I was like, wait a second. I'm an advocate of women. I, I believe in women. I love women. I respect women. I 
I, at my company, all of my employees are women. They always have been because of the industry that we're in. I hire women. I empower women. I encourage women. I, I do everything I can. Um, I support women's causes. I really believe in the equality of women. Yet I, because I'm a man and part of the male patriarchy, I am an asymptomatic carrier of the sexism that harms women. And the thing that makes me a carrier is that I have privilege as a man. And sometimes that privilege gives me advantages. And if I just take the advantages, I never acknowledge that I had the advantage. I never try to help somebody who doesn't have the advantage overcome it. Then I am asymptomatically pushing this forward. And let me give you one example, a concrete example of that. I spend a lot of time in corporate boardrooms and and meetings, and there'll be uh, 12 people sitting around a table, seven men, five women, and we're having a conversation about something. We're having an ideation session. And if I have an idea and I say, hey, I, I, I got some, I got an idea and I start to express something. If I need a full 60 seconds to talk without being interrupted, I'm pretty confident that I will get that 60 seconds and I will finish my thought and then people will weigh in. And I started to notice that when women raise their hand and say, hey, I have an idea and they start to talk within 15 to 20 seconds, they get interrupted. Hmm. Somebody asks a question or makes a challenge, then more voices start to jump in. And pretty soon, her opportunity to speak and express herself has been taken, and the room has taken over the time. And I noticed it once, then I noticed it again. Then I started to notice that it happens all the time in all different types of situations. And so that's part of my privilege as a man. As a man, people listen to me. As a man, I'm going to have time to formulate my thoughts, and women are disadvantaged in that way. And so as a man... Am I just going to take that advantage? The advantage is that I get I have time to put my point across. The advantage is that people think my ideas are good, that they implement my ideas, that I demonstrate leadership and I get promotions. I can just take the advantages that come from my privilege or I can say, how do I help people who don't have this privilege? When I see that this woman has been interrupted, I've, I've learned to just step in and use my privilege to help her get some opportunity to say, hey, hold on a second. Um, Lori, finish what you were saying. I was really curious about what you had to say and to advocate for her to be to be able to have her opportunity to speak. I think that's what we all have to start doing if to recognize our privilege and then try to help somebody who doesn't have that privilege. This is the first time, Reggie, that I'm hearing this. Like, I think in, in a way where it's not polarizing, saying that, well, if, if, it's, if you don't get it, you're, you know, you're at a loss. It's actually now, I think the context that you're putting in makes it like, well, it's a, it's a problem that we all need to recognize. It's not a problem of them. And I think what you're also making clear, and again, I'm, I'm better refraining from too much color commentary on it, but I think the point you made, I, I feel like as, as a man, I, I've seen it and felt it. Uh, and I've tried to address it, but sometimes, as you said, I'm a carrier of it. And if I don't, it is actually on me to address the problem. And that's what I hear a lot about is that well, just because somebody is, in, in, in given the context of today's African-American, they're not the expert and they're not the one who needs to solve the problem. The, they, are, they didn't create the problem. So the why ask them to say, well, what, what do you want me to do? And what are the answers to this question? Like, that's not there to do. It is yours to do because you are the carrier of that. I'd love to share more examples of what other isms are there. And then I want to get into like, you know, uh, how, how do you see this expressed today in your world of sports? Sure. You know, before we get to that, I, I, 
the the article I wrote in the Denver Post was I compared black people and white people to two breeds of dog because I think it's it's hard for people to understand institutional racism. It's hard to understand privilege, white privilege, without some kind of concrete example. And so what I I realize in my life is that I am a Rottweiler. Rottweiler. I'm a I'm a dog that people fear. When someone's coming down, when a Rottweiler is coming down the sidewalk, people have to decide whether they feel confident about passing close to that Rottweiler and they get nervous about it. Um, Rottweilers are outlawed in some communities, pit bulls and, and Rottweilers. Uh, Rottweilers, if, if animal control shows up to pick up a Rottweiler, they get out with their full protective gear and they're expecting the worst and they, they, they use every aggressive tool that they can because they feel like they're going to be in a fight for their lives and the Rottweiler experiences that. He sees them get out of the truck. He sees that they're approaching him in a threatening way. And he feels threatened and feels more need to defend himself. Well, it's hard for my white friends to understand what it's like to be black in America because white people are are, are Labrador retrievers, right? They are universally loved. They are universally accepted. You can take a, a Labrador retriever anywhere. You can take him to any coffee shop, any park, hiking, it, you can take a Labrador into anyone's house at any time. The Labrador is universally accepted and the Labrador doesn't realize it. The Labrador thinks that people are nice to the Labrador because the Labrador is friendly, because he wags his tail. And the lab is convinced if every dog would just be friendly and wag your tail, then you would be accepted in every place as well. But it ignores the reality that I don't, it, I'm a Rottweiler. It doesn't matter how much I wag my tail. It doesn't matter how friendly I am. The fear of me started on the day of my birth because of my breed. And the love of the Labrador started on the day of their birth because of their breed. They are born into the privilege of most favored breed status in America. People love Labrador retrievers. And, and so that analogy and that metaphor, I think for me, really helps to under helps people understand what it's like to be black in America to be to be feared all the time and that fear has deadly consequences you know Sangram I was telling you earlier my son is 16 he's about to turn 17 I feel like you know I'm a 52 year old man I'm experienced in life I'm a fairly calm person by my nature anyway but i'm i'm even more calm in pressure situations when i feel like i need to be so when a police officer pulls me over i put myself in a mindset that says stay calm don't let him trigger you don't react stay calm my son doesn't have that yet he's a 16 year old kid if you offend him he reacts to it vis visibly and, and physically and i am terrified for him to be on the side of the road with a police officer who might trigger him on purpose to poke at him to prod him to to try to get a reaction out of him and i'm terrified of what could happen to my son and so that's what makes me so passionate right now about this opportunity we have to have this conversation Man, uh, that one was really a uh, good one. You see Larry is joining in, uh, and Larry has been phenomenal at just sharing his voice out there in the marketplace. Uh, Kai is, is talking about, like, this is great. And, and Mark, uh, who is the CEO of Proof, uh, also joined in, and he um, he's just saying, hey, dude, here, but I know he has very strong feelings around how to help and how to address this. I'm curious, as you think about this, is that, you, you've been NFL Broncos, like, you, you know, you're a famous personality, uh, especially in Denver. 
And what is it like in sports? Because when I look at it from outside, I look at it saying that, well, one of the best players, most well-known players are African-Americans. Like, I mean, it's, it's like, I was telling you, like, I was watching some, uh, some clips of like Morgan Freeman, that the actors, the best actors you think about, the, I mean, it's, it's, it feels like from outside looking in and again, being the obliviousness of it. And I recognize that it's like, oh my God, like it's incredible, the success and, and, and you could see it. And I remember you even mentioning that in your video saying that when you walk in a room, people recognize you and they just treat you like a personality uh, when you know it. Now that may not happen, as you said, in a different city if you, they don't know you, but in the, your own city, you're a personality. They treat you differently. That's a privileged personality to have. How has it been in the sports world? Uh, because that's something we have never talked on this show. Sure. Well, I think, um, let me start with my experience here in Denver. When I moved here to Denver and I became a Denver Bronco and people started to recognize me, I thought, oh, this is what it's like to be famous. Look at that. When I walk into a store, I get I get served right away. They treat me like a customer. I, that wasn't my experience in life. You know, that when I when I walk into places, people smile at me. They're friendly to me. Um, people are happy to see me. That hadn't been my experience in life. And I thought, this is what it's like to be a famous person. But what I didn't understand is that it's not really what it's like to be a famous person. It's what it's like to be a white person. I feel like when I, I, I grew up as a black boy at age 23, when I joined the NFL, I started to experience the white world. Like I would go to a restaurant and they would you know, they put my name on the on the list and, you know, I get called up in, in five minutes or so and I I'd get seated and I, I would think, wow, this is great. This is, you know, I, it must be because I'm I'm famous that this is happening or I'd go into a store and, and they'd rush over to, to help me and uh, they'd say, oh, this is what it's like to be famous. And then I would discover from my white friends, no, this is just their expectation in life that they're they're going to be served that they're it's going to be quick that they're they're going to be respected that they're going to be acknowledged and and I discovered that yeah I'm not it's not like I'm like this uber celebrity it's like I'm white and so my my wife who is very successful she works for an aerospace company she has a master's degree in acquisition and material management she's been with this company for 24 years she makes a lot of money she is very smart very articulate very beautiful and she's black. When my wife is with me, we are treated like we're white people. We're everywhere we go. We're welcome. People smile at us. People serve us. All of that. When my wife goes someplace by herself, she is treated like a black person. They don't serve her. A couple of years ago, she walks into this place where they sell outdoor um, fireplaces and things like that. And we're redoing our, our backyard. We're, we spent $35,000 redoing our backyard. She's over there shopping. She is a customer. The guy at the place wouldn't even look at her. He's talking to a couple here. She kept waiting for him to say, oh, ma'am, I'll be with you in just a minute. She waited for 15 minutes. He never looked at her. And he, when she walks out, gets in her car, she sees him kind of look at her as she's backing out and then go back to the couple. That's her experience all the time. She is not treated like a customer. And so that's, that's, um, that's one side of it, you know, for me being a pro athlete and feeling like it was fame, but really it's whiteness. Well, in the sports world, we, we love to think that sports is colorblind. It's all about ability. If you can play, you're going to get on the field. And that is true to a large degree. I, I would say that sports is the most colorblind place that I've ever 
been for for sure. But sports is not colorblind in the sense that we'll accept players who play, but that's it. We don't want to hear anything else from them. I I think it was LeBron James a few years ago who made some comment about something that was happening in the community. And the reaction to him on the media was, why don't you stay in your lane, LeBron? Why don't you dribble a basketball and shoot free throws and leave the political commentary to us as if LeBron James doesn't have a right to voice his opinion about Mm -hmm. our political um, system, as if LeBron James doesn't have a family and kids and a community that he cares about that he wants to advocate for, as if he's somehow unqualified because he's an athlete. I've never heard anyone say that about a white athlete. I've heard them say that about black athletes. I, I know that Colin Kaepernick, Colin Kaepernick was taking a knee. Colin Kaepernick was doing the most American thing there is, peacefully protesting something that he cared about. Colin Kaepernick should have been a source of pride for us as Americans to say, look at look at America. We can have our national anthem going. We can have 76,000 people on their feet. We can have one guy on his knee. And as Americans, we have tolerance for that because we have such an allegiance to the First Amendment and free speech and the right to express yourself. That could have been a source of pride for us, but it wasn't. Colin Kaepernick is black. Colin Kaepernick is trying to say something is happening to the black community. And in that sense, it didn't matter that he was a famous uh, football player. It didn't matter that he was rich. It didn't matter that he was trying to use his platform to help people who didn't have his advantages. What mattered was he was offending white America. And so they turned it into he's disrespecting the flag. He's disrespecting the troops. And they chose to ignore what he was actually trying to point a finger at, which is what we're seeing right now. Those are so many incredible points, man. I I wonder, and, and I, I'll, I'll just put in here, th- this is, while I was reading your thoughts on, on Lead IQ, you came up with my notification for coincidence. So Adnan, thank you. Thank you for sharing it because it's interesting, but as we go live, it, it notifies everyone. You mentioned about um, another thing in that video that I wanted to see if you, if you want to share uh, more about. You mentioned about guilt and you mentioned like, well, how you felt guilty until you started taking action about the, the, the maleism and sexism that happens. And and you wanted to assure a lot of the white people, like, you, you know, you can get over the guilt and actually take action. Could you address that? Sure. Yeah, there's a you know, there's a lot of white guilt. And I you know, many of my white friends are calling me and you know, they, they really want to help. And they're, they're saying, man, I feel so, I feel so bad that this is happening and I feel so guilty about it. And, and I say, don't feel guilty. I don't, I don't think there's any reason to feel guilt about it. You were born into this privilege. You didn't create it. I was born into my male privilege. I didn't create it. Um, and so I don't, feeling guilty about it is a waste of time and it turns my sexism into something about me that I want to guilt makes me start to feel self-conscious or defensive about it because I don't want to feel guilty. And so that'll make me less effective in acting against my own sexism. Instead, find a way to start making a difference. You know, for me on the on the sexist front, I realize that every time somebody makes a sexist statement around me, if I don't, if I don't say something, then I am asymptomatically spreading this sexism. But at the same time, what does that mean? I've got to get in a big fight every time. I've got to say, hey, dude, that's sexist. I won't bread that and, you know, and, and have these big confrontations. No, of course not. What I've learned to do is to try to be funny about it 
and just point it out. You know, we uh, a year ago, one of my poker buddies, he said, hey, I can't I can't play poker tonight because I've got to babysit my kids. And we all kind of laughed and he was on speakerphone. He had called one of us and he was on speakerphone. And I thought, this is one of those moments. If I don't say anything, then I am the part of the asymptomatic spread of this sexism. And so I, I made a joke. I said, you're, you're watching your own kids? That's not babysitting. That's called parenting. What do yep. you mean you're babysitting your own kids? And everybody laughed about it. And it was, it was a moment to point out that as men, we have a sexist view of the caretaking of children. When our wives do it, it's their job. It's part of their responsibility. When we do it, we're doing a favor to our wives that, yeah. hey, I'm babysitting the kids is is a sexist statement. And, um, you know, another example of it is that um, so many women in business that I've talked to say they've all had an older female mentor at work who has told them, listen, if you got to take your kid to a doctor's appointment, do not say you need time off to take your kid to a doctor's appointment. If your kid is sick, do not say, I need to take the day because my kid is sick. It'll hurt your career. They already think that women aren't capable of doing the work, that women are too distracted by their obligations at home. If they feel like you've got to take care of your kids during the workday, it's going to hurt your chances for advancement. And so don't say that. And so women have learned not to say that. By contrast, as a man, if I say, hey, I need to leave to take my son to a dentist appointment, I am practically going to get a medal. If yeah. you're like, what? <laughs> you're saying, oh my God, this Reggie is amazing. This guy is such a great father, such a great husband. Yes. I mean, there'll be a parade and confetti as I'm walking out of the building to go pick up my son and take him to the, the dentist. And, and that's part of my privilege. Part of my privilege is I can do the exact same thing that a woman does. When I do it, I will get praise for it. When she does it, she'll get a negative response um, from that. And so for me, it's all about trying to recognize those moments that privilege shows up in my life. And then how would I help somebody who doesn't have that privilege? I don't need to feel guilty about the male privilege that I have. I just need to feel activated and, and ready to take action to try to change it for others. Dude, that is so good. And I've said that. I, I'll admit to it that I have said that to uh, to a friend of mine and he did the same thing to me. He's like, you don't babysit your own kids. Uh, and it, it it went through like an arrow through my heart. I'm like, oh my God, like what a, a you know, yeah, you, you're right. And I think this is, this is very profoundly impactful to me personally, Reggie, because which for the first in this, in this whole series, there has been so many moments of learnings. But in this moment, I'm learning that I, isms are in many different forms. And one with the other, everyone is actually a carrier of that. And if you are not taking action, if you're not activating yourself, then you are not part of the solution. So you made me realize that I'm actually, yes, I'm not neither white nor black, but I'm a carrier of a ton of other isms around me. And I, if I have a privilege to be a founder, if I have a privilege to be a guy, then it is my responsibility to do something about it. I think your whole talk of bringing the the other point of view without being, well, this is how it needs to be. And this is why, I mean, it's, it's, it's very refreshing. And I really, really appreciate it. You can see the comments like from Tracy, like, thank you for sharing that. You can see from Larry uh, talking about this as well. So this is, this is really, really powerful. Give me an example 
for, for people because one of the common questions, and I'm sure you get that too because you wrote that in that article, is like, what can I do? Like, what can I physically, emotionally, practically do today to do it? Like a lot of people think that, well, this is a long-term thing. It's a systematic thing. Um, we, we really can't do, one person can't really do much. And, I'm, and, I, and I think you and I back to defer. And, and this whole series allowed me to see that no, there's every single person listening to this right now can do something. So w- would you share for a, for a woman, for a guy, for a white, for a black, like for brown, like what is it that they could do? One or two examples. I think that'd be fantastic. Sure. Absolutely. I think that the COVID-19 has given us a good model for what each of us can do individually. There is the symptomatic spread of COVID, people who have a fever, people who have a cough, people who whatever, they're showing symptoms. They know that they should take themselves out of circulation. But the rest of us, we could have it and we're spreading it asymptomatically. So the rest of us wear masks. And that wearing that mask is a way that we're trying to protect other people. I think we have to find a way to do a similar thing with our our um, racism and sexism and all the other isms. And so an example of something that you can do. I have a, a friend of mine um, who got pulled over by the police a couple of years ago. And this and his phone call to me is one of the things that you can do as, as a white person. So he recognized that he had privilege in a situation. He's um, he's a he's a white man. He's the same age as me. He's 52. He's driving a Porsche um, SUV. And he and his wife have just left a party downtown at the Four Seasons. And so he's driving. A police officer pull, uh, pulls up behind him. They're still in downtown Denver. Lights are on. So he's trying to find a place to pull over. And there's parked cars everywhere. He can't find any place. Finally makes a right turn, pulls over. Cop comes up. And the cop says, uh, license and registration. And he says, where are you coming from? And he says, oh, we were at a party at um, at the Four Seasons. And the cop says, have you been drinking? He's like, well, I had a couple of drinks, but but I'm okay. And the officer says, well, the reason I ask is because you don't have your headlights on. And he's like, oh, oh, well, you know, I parked my car with a valet. The valet must have turned them off. And then when I got in my car, it was so light in downtown, I didn't notice. And the cop says, okay. And then when I pulled you, when I turned on my lights for you to pull over, you turned the wrong way down a one way street to pull over. And he's like, oh, wow, I, I, did, I didn't realize that I was just I was just looking for a place to pull over quickly. I didn't realize it. And so he and the cop talk for a couple of minutes. The cop says, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I want you to turn your car around so it's facing the right way and leave it parked here. And if you'll take an Uber home, I'm not going to give you a ticket. And he says, man, I'm so grateful. Thank you very much. Turns his car around, parks it correctly. He and his wife take an Uber home. The next day he calls me and he says, Reggie, I finally understand what you're talking about, that what what it is to be privileged. That officer saw me as a person. He saw me as a husband. He saw me as a father. He saw me as himself. And he recognized that oh, maybe I could use a break. He probably should have given me a field sobriety test. He probably should have given me a ticket, but he didn't. And I got home in an Uber and, and then we're going back to pick up my car here shortly. And all I've been thinking about, Reggie, since that happened is, would Reggie have had the same experience with that police officer? And I think that's something that we all can do. We all have to just start to recognize how does privilege show up in my life and how does privilege smooth my path? And then when you find it, point it out to other people, point it out to especially your friends of color, because for us, a big part of the frustration is that we don't feel like white America has any idea what's happening to us. We don't feel that 
you know, I, I've talked to my white friends and they say, yeah, when I get pulled over by for a cop, my heart rate goes up because I don't want to get a ticket and I don't want to get points on my license and I don't want my insurance to go up. And I think none of that crosses my mind. What I think about when that cop is walking to my window is he is afraid of me. What can I do to de-escalate his fear of me? And no matter how many times I've tried to explain that to people, nobody really gets it. So when my friend called me and told me, that was so comforting to me that he recognizes privilege in that moment. And I think that's the, the simplest thing that people can start to do. Recognize the moments in your life when privilege shows up and then talk to your friends of color about that moment, because what we need is some encouragement and some acknowledgement that you see the world that we live in. Dude, that is, oh man, yeah. I mean, I'm just going through that moment of like, as you were talking through that, as how how it impacts that person, but also more importantly impacts you as a person because somebody just said that you're visible. Right. Understand your pain. Uh, Understand, or at least can comprehend that how would this experience be the same or not? You you speak to a lot of corporations. You do their kickoffs. I was in, in one of those with you. Uh, man, it was, where was that? That was about a year or two years ago. South Carolina, a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. And Blue Ridge, Blue Ridge uh, Mountains. So yeah. it, was, it was a beautiful side. Um, you do a lot of kickoffs. You do, you, you meet a lot of board, um, senior level executives. Any, any um, feedback or uh, examples or, or recommendations that you would want to say that, well, for the working America where you have uh, people, but we all know that um, that diversity is not great in most corporations. I will raise my hand and say uh, my own organization, we're about 250 people here based in Atlanta. It's not like we need to go look for diversity. Like Atlanta is a pretty diverse place. But we don't have as much diversity as we should. And it, it finally, like we have been talking about it, but it finally like, all right, we need to actually have a, a clear priority as a business to make this real. And not because it's the, uh, it's the, it's the hot topic, but it's because it's, a, it's actually how our customers, uh, it's representing what our city looks like. It's representing what our customers look like. So when we don't have that, we're missing as a business a, a, a big portion of what our business, a good business should look like. So it, we're making it as a business priority and a business decision, not like, oh, we got to have diversity for the sake of diversity. No, we need to have a diversity because that's what our people, our city, our business and, and customers look like. So I'm wondering and curious, as you talk to so many corporations, are there any recommendations how they can address that as part of their hiring, educating, uh, supporting their teams? Yeah, I, I definitely think I think it was uh, Kwame who who talked about mentorship. And yeah. and I am. I truly believe in that. I, I think that it is incumbent on all business leaders to look inside their own business and look inside their own industry and find someone to mentor, find several someones to mentor, finding black professionals who are early in their careers, mid-level in their careers, high in their careers to reach out and offer mentorship. And, and then the mentorship isn't a one-way street. It's not Hey, I'm the wise person sitting up here on a pillar. I'm going to tell you what to what you need to know. A lot of it is listening and try to discover what are the roadblocks in the path? What are the the challenges that they're up against? And and here's the thing, as a leader, you might know more of the roadblocks than they know. Mm-hmm. You just might not be aware that you know them. 
you you might be privy to conversations that are happening and um, situations or or racial bias that is activated and you're unaware of it until you start to listen to this person talk and you say, yeah, I try to do this, but that, it, it, you know, I couldn't get that job because this didn't happen or I couldn't connect with this person. And you might know, oh, I understand what happened there. You know, I, I want to give a quick example from a, another sexist point of view. And, and the reason I keep talking about sexism is because I think for me as a black man, when I'm talking to my white friends, I feel like it's ineffective for me to talk to them about their privilege and how they should cure their privilege. I just, I think that maybe it can be impactful, but I feel it's ineffective for me to do that. And so instead, I feel like it's more effective for me to talk about my privilege, my sexism, what I need to do about it, and encourage them to try to feel the fabric of their own privilege, their white privilege. So I was in a, I was in a, this meeting and I was part of a team that was merging two big divisions of a company together. And so there was a, an innovation department and a, I can't remember what the BNI, so I can't remember what it was called, but these two divisions, big divisions were getting merged together. And we're trying to find out what are the overlapping positions? Who's going to get laid off? Who's going to, who's going to get kept? Well, one of the leaders in one of these groups, he was leaving, he was going to be going out and he advocated for a woman. And he said, hey, if, if there's a place for her, she is great and she, she would do fabulous. And you know what? She would do it for this amount of money. I mean, this, you know, she, she would take a pay cut and just she wants to keep her job and she can stay here. And I'm thinking, wow, that's great. This guy is advocating for her and and she might keep a job even though he's leaving. I thought I felt I, admiration for him for doing that. There was a woman on the HR team who was there. She said, no. We're not going to offer her, give her a lowball offer. If we're going to keep her in the position, we're going to pay her what that position pays, what we would offer anybody in that position. And like you said, Sangram, it was like an arrow through my heart. It was like, yes, this is how it happens. Yeah. This is right. We as men, we feel like, man, how generous. Look at this guy. He's advocating for this woman and she's lucky to get this job at yeah. the pay that we're willing to offer. But a woman says, yeah, why are you doing that? Why would you offer her less than you would offer somebody else? And so for me, it's all of those things. It's like recognizing in our corporate structure, how often does our system discriminate against black people? And you can discover that if you mentor black people and uh, and you encourage everyone below you to also mentor somebody, find someone to mentor, find someone to listen to and start to learn about their challenges. Man, I'm 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 so in on for that because we talked about this as an executive team, and I'm seeing this happen more often now, Reggie, which is that older team members are actually looking for wanting to mentor, but more importantly, they're looking to learn from them because you know I think there was a study that says that in the five next five to ten years, the next generation are going to displace all of us, uh, you know, because we're too old for all of, all of these leadership roles, apparently. So. We would, and, and so you need to learn from them how they operate, how they think, how they take feedback, how they respond to it. So the mentorship, if anybody's listening to this and saying, well, I'm not sure if I can go ask to be meant, like to be mentored for someone. I think everyone on the leadership team is actually looking for learning from you. And it's a two-way street, as you said, not just one-way street. So I love that. Reggie. I can't thank you enough for jumping on uh, so quickly, being an amazing friend. And and I really, really love, and I hope you don't stop doing this, which is to 
share your privilege because this is the first time I'm hearing and when you go of this conversation talking about and relating it to like, oh, I got a privilege too. And I think everybody listening can find out and figure out that they all have privilege. Almost like I'm thinking like if you are, um, you know, as a parent, I have a privilege with my kids and you know how I treat my kids and how they might be feeling. So there is nobody who does not have a privilege against somebody else at some point as an adult. So think about it, put yourself in that situation and address that. And, and two takeaways that I'm taking from here is recognize when your privilege happens and take that moment and then address that and talk to it, talk to someone who you don't think has the same privilege, make them visible. I think, I think that was a very profoundly strong moment. And another, uh, another part that you mentioned a couple of times was around this idea of like, you gotta, you gotta say something you gotta, and you don't have to be in a confrontational way. I love the way you talked about the babysitting your own kids as an example, you've you got to do something in the way you can and I think I love the way you are. I'm going to actually adopt that. Uh, if you're okay, I'm going to steal that idea. Just talk about my privilege or my way of doing it, not trying to be a victim, but rather saying that, hey, look, even I have a privilege and I recognize how debilitating that could be for somebody else. So say something without necessarily being condescending or putting the other person almost in a you know defensive position where they're like, well, I got nothing to offer. Right. So yeah. I love that. Any final thoughts and how can people get in touch with you? Um, well, sure. People can find me online at uh, thegalateam.com. Um, they can find my contact information. But I just want to say thank you, Sangram, to, for your leadership in hosting these conversations. And this is, to me, it, this really is what needs to happen right now, is that we all have to have these conversations. They're not easy to have. You've shown a lot of courage and a lot of leadership to just kind of jump out there and foster these conversations. And I, it feels like we're in a unique time in our history when we're all listening and we're all open to hearing what's happening. And I, I feel very encouraged by it. And I appreciate you and I appreciate all the people who are part of this movement. Man, I can't, can't wait, man. Can't wait for this too. So uh, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, Lisa, Kai, Stacy, you know, Larry, Indrani. Oh, this is, I'm going to put this guy, Indrani. He is my nephew in India listening to it. I got to put him uh, over here. <laughs> you know, but Ricardo, I, I think Ricardo Gonzalez is another one of those culture experts. And he talks about different cultures and how they happen. He's written a book on cultural mastery is, is phenomenal. And Kai has been again. And, then I, and I could see that people from all, not only different parts of America, but also from all different gender, race, and, and color. And I think everybody's trying to, to your point, trying to listen and see it. But I really appreciate specifically, uh, Reggie, where you're like, talk about your own privilege. And that's the best way to connect. I feel like, you know, you just have opened a different way of pulling out together. So again, thank you so much, Reggie. And thank you everyone for listening in. Um, next week, we'll continue uh, our regular interviews on all kinds of things that I, I do on becoming intentional. Um, and for people who want to join in, um, here is a, a quick, you can literally text uh, intentional to 33777. Um, that's where I send my 111 note of becoming an intentional leader. Uh, there are about 15,000 people who have signed up for it. Uh, so it's a fun place. And I'll be putting some of the notes and learnings from what's going on in these conversations uh, in that uh, in that note. So again, Reggie, thank you so much. Uh, we'll thank be catching on on the other side of this. All right. Thank you, Sangro. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. 
To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.